0: God's unmerited favor, oh love, favor that will not let me go, unmerited. It's God's love for us. I just thought that was beautiful. And then the very next song is, Oh No, You'll Never Let Go. Like, Thank God for his grace. He, he refuses to let us go. So before we begin with the scriptures, let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, we're amazed at your grace. Your grace truly is amazing, and we thank you for it. Lord, help us to never take it for granted, to always... Um, thank you, and to remember that your love is fixed on us because of who you are. And so, Lord, we thank you and praise you for that. We thank you for the grace that you've brought to us in Jesus Christ. And Lord, now, as we turn to read your scriptures to understand this passage, uh, we need more of your grace. We need your Holy Spirit to come and to open our hearts and minds uh, to um, help us to see what it is that you're saying through your scriptures to us today. Because Lord, you've confessed, you have said in your Word that it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Um, it's not a stale old document, but it's it's alive today. And so, Lord, would you come and fill your Word with meaning and be alive in us this morning? And uh, we ask these things in Christ's name for His glory. Amen. So, um, last week was Easter. It, what a great service! I really just had a. wonderful easter the service was was great thank you all for joining us Uh, two weeks ago though we started on chapter 21 and uh, that was kind of the beginning of the end phase of uh, the book of acts Uh, paul moves to or heads into jerusalem he meets with james and the elders and they said we have a problem there are a bunch of Jews who are believers but they're zealous for the law and they think that you're teaching people to abandon Moses and the law and so we need to do something about it. And so what James and the elders propose is we want you to go to the temple. There's four guys that are going to take a vow and we want you to take a vow with them and pay their their um, their uh, way for the vow. That way people will see there's nothing to these charges, that you're still Jewish. You're, you're just working with a bunch of Gentiles and, and it's all okay. And that's where we left it. So this week... We're almost to Paul's defense where he, he begins to offer his uh, his defense to the Jews who are accusing him, but we don't get there yet and I was hoping to get there I'm chomping at the bit to get to that speech it, it, I, I love going through that I think he does a wonderful job but before we get there we have some more business to do and when uh, Rich read that doesn't does this sound just like another one of those transitional pieces you know moving us from okay, go take a vow to now you're in trouble um, It it feels like that, and honestly, as I was going through the commentaries, a lot of commentaries treat it like that. They just kind of go through, oh, this is interesting, this is interesting, this is interesting, and they're trying to get to the speech really quick. Um, And that was what I was afraid I was going to do. But as I was looking at this and unpacking a little bit, I found out there's there's some important things going on here. Luke is is tying up something that he began a while ago, and he's going to bring it to fruition here. So if the book of Acts is... Jesus' disciples making disciples. What do we learn as disciples from just this little passage? Um, we learn some things about um, uh, Roman centurions in, in, uh, in the temple courts. We learn about the, the temple stuff. But there's a, an important discipleship principle in here too. too. And, and what I think we're going to see this morning is, why is Christianity odd? Why is it weird? Why is it so different? Um, and to get there, we're going to look at three things. There's an error. The, the accusation against Paul, there's an error, there's a response, and then there's an arrest. And through that, we'll see how this fits together. Does that, that makes perfect sense, right? Christianity is odd, and you learn that because of an error, a response, and an arrest. Yeah, okay. Aren't you glad this is God's li- word, living and active, and he'll make sense out of it? Um, I know I am. So here's what's going on. Uh, it's a, it starts out with this, when the seven days were almost complete. Which seven days? Um, the seven days of the vow. Now I'm going to get in trouble here because I'm going to disagree with a lot of the commentators. Uh, almost everybody says, "Well, this is a Nazarite vow," and uh, you get the Nazarite vow from Numbers chapter six, goes through a detailed explanation of what a Nazarite vow is. Nazarite vow: the word Nazar in Hebrew means separate or or, um, or consecrated, set aside. And so, a Nazarite vow is a vow somebody takes. For themselves, they set themselves aside. And so, in the Nazarite vow, they're not allowed to drink wine. Not only are they not allowed to drink wine, they're not allowed to eat grapes or raisins. Not only are they not allowed to eat grapes or raisins, they couldn't eat dolmas, which are wrapped in grape leaves. You can't have anything to do with the fruit of the vine for a period of time. And then you don't cut your hair. And if you are around somebody who dies suddenly, then there's another ritual you have to go through to be purified so that you complete your Nazarite vow. And at the end of the Nazarite vow, you go to the temple, you bring a specific offering, you shave your head, and you take your hair and you put that on the altar as well, and that's your vow. And so people read this and they see this as a Nazarite vow. I think there's a number of things missing. Chiefly, the word Nazarite is not mentioned. It's just a vow. Um, There is, if you remember previously when when Paul took a vow, he talked about shaving his head, and so I think that's where they get the Nazarite idea. Um, It might be... Um, And this is how I get myself out of hot water with the commentators. It might be that what they're doing is they're looking at, well, what does a vow look like? Well, the scriptures give us this Nazarite vow, so vows should be along those lines. Um, The reason I say this is probably not the Nazarite vow, is those first words, when the seven days were almost finished. The seven days aren't mentioned in a Nazarite vow. There is an eight-day period, but that's only if you're in the middle of a vow and somebody dies next to you. Then you have to wait eight days and you have to do this other thing to be cleansed so you can complete your vow. That just isn't mentioned here. So whatever it is, it looks like Paul has gone to the temple and said, uh, here are the days of our purification. Um, that's how it ends in the last section is it talks about he goes to the temple. He takes those four people with him. He goes into the temple and says, the days, this is the days of our purification. Here's our offering. And he gives money on his behalf and on their behalf. And so the days of purification must have been seven days because now it's the seventh day and he's back in the temple. So that's what brings him into the temple is the days of purification. They're almost finished. Um, So he goes there and it says the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and lays hands on him. The Jews from Asia. um, One of the commentators said, and I kind of agree, I think this might be the Jews from Ephesus. Because they see Trophimus from Ephesus, and they recognize him, and they say, wait, he's a Jew. So these Jews might be from Ephesus. Um, Also, if you saw how the Jews treated him in Ephesus, you get the idea that they weren't really happy with Paul. So that's what it could be. Then then the Jews of Asia is just kind of using a generic term, a large term for that area. Um, But they see Paul, and they've run into this guy before. They've heard his preaching before, and they don't like him. And so they're opposed to him. And so they stir up the whole crowd and they lay hands on him. And then they cry out. This is how they get the crowd's attention. Men of Israel, help. We found somebody here who's a troublemaker, who's trouble. We need your help. Come here now. That's what they're doing is they're shouting to get the crowd to draw together. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. So that's the summary of what they hear in Paul's preaching is Paul is preaching against the people, the law, in this place. So why would they say he's preaching against the people? Well, because Paul is saying the Gentiles are included. The Gentiles are brought in. They are now part of God's people. The wall of division has been torn down. He says in in Ephesians, uh, you were once aliens and strangers to the covenants of the promise, but now you've been brought in. He says in Galatians, if you are of Christ, you are heirs, uh, children of Abraham, heirs according to promise. So these people are looking at that and saying, no, we Jews are unique. We're a special people. We are not like those those dirty Gentiles who are outside. You're preaching against the people if you're telling us that the Gentiles are welcome with us now. And I think that's accurate. I think that's what Paul is saying is the Gentiles are brought in. Um, Last Saturday, we went to a Seder meal with a friend. And as we were reading some of the prayers, there was one part in the Seder that says, we were prisoners in Egypt, and you set us free, and retelling that story, but we're doing it in the first person. And for the first time, I've ever felt extraordinarily Gentile saying that. I was like, this is not my history. But then I thought about it, and I said, yeah, I'm extraordinarily Gentile. This is not my history, but I've been grafted in. I have been brought into this. This is now my history. So when he said, when they say Paul is preaching against the people, that's the feeling they have is, is you're saying the Gentiles are part of this now? That's impossible. They're, they're always excluded. They're always cut out unless they go through these very strict rituals. So that's what they see and they understand Paul to be saying. He's preaching against the people. They say that he's also preaching against the law. And when we talked about that the other week, two weeks ago, um, parts of the law no longer apply. And they no longer apply not because God waved his hands and went, "Yeah, forget it, we'll not do that now. Part of it doesn't apply because Jesus came and Jesus fulfilled it all. And so you don't offer sacrifice. You don't offer these rituals to atone for your sin. Jesus is the final one. He came and he sat down. And that's why I think the last one is important too. He, he's preaching against this place, this temple, He's saying that this temple doesn't have its same function in the the nation, in the economy of the covenants anymore. He's preaching against this temple. Isn't that what they said about Jesus too? You who said you would tear this temple down in three days and raise it up again, or tear this temple down and raise it up in three days, save yourself. It's the same thing. You're you're touching on the temple. These are issues of national pride for the Jews. This is who they are. We are a unique people. We're defined by God's law. That defines who we are. We've been given His law. His oracles have been handed to us. And this temple is the center of who we are as a people. Have you ever noticed in any disaster movie, right? Godzilla, uh, Independence Day, uh, some earthquake movie or something, there's always some huge national monument that gets crumbled. Right? The the, the poster for Independence Day is the White House and a big UFO beaming a beam into it to blow it up. It's always this big monument. You see um, some, some cathedral or something being torn down, and we go, oh, that's terrible. That's because it twings in us. It, it, it hits our hearts, and we go, that's a source of national pride. We know what that is. So when he talks against the temple, it would be like somebody coming and saying, yeah, the White House is you know just, you know, poor tenement or something and you know it's it's no big deal well the White House whoever the occupant is that's a source of our nation that's a picture of who we are as a people the the Capitol building yeah it's just a crummy dome no that's that's the seat of our government it represents our nation those kind of things so this past week when Notre Dame burnt down that was painful for the people of Paris for the French in general because what do you think of when you think of Paris two things Eiffel Tower and Notre Dame and Notre Dame just burnt down so people are contributing tons of money to rebuild this thing they want it put back up so that's the idea here is if you touch the temple if you preach against the temple you're insulting us as a people so who did they call men of Israel you Israelites all of you who are here in the temple come together and and help us deal with this man He is attacking us as a nation he's attacking our identity And then here's the real charge. Here's where it comes down to. Moreover, he brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. It kind of sums it all up, doesn't it? He preached against the people. He brought Greeks in. He defiled this holy place. He he insulted the temple. He violated the law. That's kind of the the icing on the cake, the proof of it. And so that's the accusation against him is he's brought Greeks in. And then Luke kind of inserts this, this interpretation for us. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with them in the city, and they supposed that he had brought them into the temple. Did they have an ironclad case against Paul? No. <laughs> they seen him hanging out with Greeks, and therefore he must have brought ge- Greeks into the temple, and therefore we have to, you know, throw him out. So all the city, in, in verse 30 it says, Then all the city was stirred up. Was all of the city stirred up? Did they text each other? Word got out on social media, they tweeted, hey, Paul brought a Gentile into the temple. There's no way that the whole city was stirred up. This is what is called um, hyperbole. It's a way of saying there was a lot of commotion, and it felt like the whole city had gone just insane. It it doesn't mean that every single person in Jerusalem turns out and crowds into this thing. He's saying this is a big deal. There was a lot of commotion. Um, the whole city was stirred up, and people ran together. They seized Paul, and they dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. So if you, you're probably familiar with this, but just to remember the layout of the temple courts, the outer court was called the Court of the Gentiles. There was about a four-foot high wall, like a, like a balustrade, that surrounded that, and, and in there, every couple of feet, was a sign that said, if you're a Gentile and you go past this, you rightly deserve the execution you're facing. And it's not kidding. They found it. I mean, archaeologists have dug one of these up, and they found one. So that was the court of the Gentiles. It wasn't this big, huge wall. It was a, it was a balustrade. It was a, a railing, but it kept them out. The next court in was the court of the women, and that's where Israel, Israeli women could go in there. They could go into that area. Beyond that was the court of the men, and that's where the, the faithful men, the clean, clean men could go. That's probably where Paul was when he's taking this vow. And then inside that was the holy place. That was where the temple building was, and only the priests could go in there. And then the most holy place, the holy of holies, was the, the center inside, deep inside the temple. So it was these layers going in. So they drag him out. They probably grabbed him from the court of the men and drug him all the way out to the court of the Gentiles, and then there are gates in the court of the men that they would slam closed. So why do they slam the gates closed? Well, to keep the dirty Gentiles out, but also because I think of what comes next. (laughs) There is a riot. They drag him out, and as they were seeking to kill him, so they're beating him, they're probably looking around for stones to stone him. This is a big riot, all centered around Paul. As they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. The place is in utter chaos. And so they slammed the gates, probably to keep anybody else from coming in, but also to communicate to the Roman cohort, A, you're not welcome here. B, there's no trouble in here. You don't need to come in. We shut it outside. Stay out. So that's probably why the, court, the, the gates were closed. And it's, it's like a, a, a literary picture that, that Luke has just painted, because this is the last time we'll see the temple in the book of Acts. This is the last place we'll see it. And what's just happened? God's man, God's prophet, God's messenger has been physically dragged out of the temple and the doors slammed closed against him. And that's it. Temple is gone. And, And if you look forward through the rest of the book of Acts, what you'll see is this is kind of indicative of what happens from here on out. Paul is now gonna be arrested. He's gonna meet a bunch of people. There will be no more conversions. There will be no more preaching in synagogues. Every place Paul goes, people will resist him. When he goes to Caesarea, Herod will say, you almost have me convinced, almost. When he gets to Malta and he's bitten by a a snake, the people will say, oh, it's a God amongst us. Not God is working miracles. When he gets to finally Rome in the last chapter, the way the book ends is he preaches to some Jews who come in to check him out and they don't believe. So this slamming of the doors, it seems almost incidental, but it really is a picture of what is going to happen going forward. Israel has rejected God's message and God's messenger. Slam. It's over. So that's where we're heading for the rest of the book. The gates are closed, and they're seeking to kill him. so this, um, co- the, the tribune of the cohort comes. Who is a tribune, and what's a cohort? Well, the tribune is actually a chiliarch. Aren't you glad they didn't transliterate that? The chiliarch means not somebody who's cold, <laughs> who's, who's really cold. You know, arc, arch enemy kind of thing. It means a commander of thousands. And under the chiliarch, there were centurions. And centurions were commanders of hundreds. So what happens here, this is, a, is, this is one of those aspects of Luke writing that you remember, hey, we're in a we section. Remember I talked about we sections? we came to jerusalem they received us so it seems like luke is there he must have been standing in the court of the gentiles because what comes next is so much little detail that it sounds firsthand it sounds like he was there so when he talks about the tribune of the cohort what he's saying is there was a a battalion of roman soldiers that were stationed in that area right next to the temple as a matter of fact in one corner of the temple mound Herod the Great had built this edifice called the Castle of Antonia. And it was built right next to the Court of the Gentiles. And there was a staircase that came down from that and landed in the Court of the Gentiles. So the Romans put their cohort there. So if anything happened in the the temple, the Roman soldiers could just run right down. They could be right in the temple and they could stifle any kind of contention that was going on. So the, the cohort hears this. And what it probably was is they probably had a lookout overlooking the temple courts to make sure everything was okay. And when he hears, hey, there's trouble, there's there's a big commotion down there, he grabs a bunch of troops and says, let's go. Why? Well, I've said this a number of times, Pax Romana, right? The peace of Rome. The peace of Rome is you never have civil unrest. And if you have civil unrest and it's not dealt with, the people will be punished. And the the way the Romans viewed this was, we will execute a bunch of people, we will just come through and kill everybody who's standing here, or we'll arrest people or something, but there is going to be action taken. The tribune of the cohort has to get involved, because if the Pax Romana is interrupted, the people are punished, but so is the person who was charged to keep it. So this man is vested in making sure this big whatever is going on ends soon. And so he runs down there. And it, he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when he saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. It, <laughs> remember when you were a little kid fighting with your brother and mom would come in the room? <laughs> You'd oh, stop, we're not doing anything. That's exactly what happened. Suddenly they look up and they see the Roman cohorts and they go, yeah, we're, we're, stop. <laughs> we're not doing anything. There's it, no big deal. They immediately freeze because they know this is going to go bad if they don't. So they stop beating Paul. So the tribune comes and he, he arrests Him. Whom? Paul. The one who's being beaten up is the one who gets arrested. Obviously, you've caused the trouble, so we'll arrest you. They grab him, and they start taking him away. But the tribune says, all right, now what's the charge? And they can't come up with an answer. It's confusion. Everybody's yelling different things. Why? Well, because the issue is complicated, first of all. Second of all, they can't agree on what he's actually done. Have there been Greeks in the temple? Who did they drag out? Did they drag out Trophimus? They didn't find a Greek. They found Paul. So the charge is he brought a Greek into the temple. Oh, and by the way, there are no Greeks here. But we don't care. We're going to beat him up anyway. So he can't get a straight answer. Some of the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him brought into the barracks. So here's what we're going to do. I can't get a straight answer out of this crowd. We will take him in, and we will interrogate him. And in Roman speak, that means we'll torture him until he tells us something. You didn't want to be interrogated by Romans. It wasn't, you know, please tell me what you're doing. There were no Miranda rights or any of that. It was, okay, we're going to beat you until you tell us something. It um, wasn't a pretty thing. So they grab him and they take him out. And when he, took, when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. When he came to the steps, that's that, tower, that, that castle of Antonia right there on the, Gentile, um, the court of the Gentile. Luke throws this little detail in because he's there firsthand. He's watching it happen. He sees that's what's going on. And then this is one of those little things that there is no literary value to including this next little bit. It has no bearing on the rest of it. It's thrown in because Luke is writing as a firsthand witness. They actually had to carry him up the steps. Why is that there? What's the point of that? There is zero point in including that little detail. Luke includes it because Luke is seeing it. He's like, yeah, you should have seen it. It was so bad they had to pick him up and carry him up the stairs. It's a legitimate, it's a real thing. By the way, there's another aspect to this that I think adds to the authenticity of historical accuracy, the trustworthiness of the book of of Acts. Do you remember a couple of chapters ago when they were traveling to Jerusalem they stopped, and a man named Agabus came down from Jerusalem to Caesarea, and he prophesied. He took Paul's belt, he tied his hands and his feet, and he said, this is, what's gonna, this is what awaits the man who owns this belt in Jerusalem. The Jews will bind him and hand him over to the Gentiles. And when, we, when I covered that, I said, when we get there, that's not exactly what happens. Um, did the Jews bind him? Well, the Gentiles put the chains on him, but they did seize him and they drug him out. Did they willingly turn him over to the the, uh, Gentiles? Did they go up and knock on the barracks door and go, hey, we got a bad guy? No, the Gentiles came and took him. So at the time I said, don't push the details too much. It's a prophecy. It's not expected to be exact in every little point in detail. Do you notice the difference here though? The Jews didn't bind him, the Gentiles did. The Jews didn't hand him over or take him to the Gentiles, the Gentiles came and took him. If Luke was trying to fabricate a story, or if people after Luke were trying to, you know, make sure this all works, they would have edited that. They would have made these two agree, and they don't. Not in specifics. And so you could look at it one way and say, well, that just proves the Bible's unreliable because, you know, the prophecy didn't come true. Well, the prophecy did come true. He was bound and he was turned over to the Gentiles. But the difference makes it seem like people are not interested in trying to reconcile all this and pretty it up and make it re- make it uh, sound good they're accurately reporting what happened. This is what happened. Agabus prophesied what happened. This is how it, how it played out. So it's those little details, those little things that Luke keeps throwing in that sound just so authentic. As a matter of fact, that, that detail about the stairs and the Tower of Antonia and all that, if you read Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian writing to the Romans to explain what the Jews were all about, he goes into great detail about this whole setup. And when you turn around and read how Luke reports it, it's like these are in total agreement. Nobody had to tweak this or fudge it or anything. Luke is in the, historic, the category of a historian as Josephus is. He's just accurately reporting what happened. So they carry him up the stairs because the mob of the people and the crowd keep crying out, away with him. What they mean by away with him is, please judge this man. Execute him. He's, he's a troublemaker. You take him and you deal with him. That's what's going on. So that's the story as it plays out. Um, What's going on here? What's Luke doing by telling this? He could have said, if he he just wanted to get Paul arrested, he could have summed that up a lot simpler. Um, As I was looking through some of the commentaries, they draw a parallel between what happens to Paul here and what happened to Stephen in chapter 7. And you remember... Paul was involved in that. He stood and he guarded the cloaks. He approved of the execution of Stephen. And it's a similar kind of thing because Stephen gives this lengthy uh, sermon to explain his position, and that's what Luke is, or Paul is going to do next. Um, but there's a number of places, and the commentators even admit, there's a number of places where it breaks down because Paul didn't get killed, and Stephen did. And so some other commentators say, well, this is just like what happened to Jesus, they couldn't come up with a solid answer. They drug him out. They, you know, they crucified him. The, the Roman centurion came and, and did this. But it doesn't line up exactly. And, and at this point, I want to invite you all to be very critical of me. I need you to do a sanity check on this because nobody else found this but I did, and it makes me nervous. It's like, wait, why did I see this and these other people didn't? I think what I see here is not a parallel to Stephen or to Jesus, I think what I see is a parallel to Ephesus. So do you remember in chapter 19 what happened in Ephesus? There was a man named Demetrius, he was a silversmith, and he built little metal shrines to Artemis and sold them. And so let me just go between the two stories and line them up for you and and try to justify myself. But really, it really worries me that nobody else has seen this. Um, I'm not that clever. So it's Jews from Asia, as I said, Probably Ephesus, because they recognize Trophimus, who is from Ephesus. So Ephesus is at least in the story. It was Demetrius the silversmith of Ephesus, which is in Asia. So there's a parallel. In chapter 21, the Jews yell, men of Israel. In Acts 19, Demetrius starts his discussion with the other silversmiths, men. Andres, the same word, the same Greek word. The Jews accuse him, this man, this man is teaching everyone everywhere. What Demetrius says is, this Paul uses the same word again there too. Paul persuaded and turned away a great many. This man is teaching, this man is persuading and turning away. The Jews say he's turning the people against the, uh, he's turning everyone against the people, the law in this place. What Demetrius says is he's telling people, he's convincing people that God's made, without, or made with hands are not real gods. So there's that religious aspect to it. The accusation is he brought Greeks into the temple. What, he, what uh, Demetrius says is the temple of our great goddess is going to be corrupted. Paul's presence is a threat to the temple. They, the, the Greeks in chapter 21 say he defiled this holy place. What Demetrius says is this temple of Artemis may be counted as nothing. The, the estimation of this place is going to go down. In Acts 21, all the city was stirred up. In Acts 19, the city was filled with confusion. The city is mentioned in both of them. The people ran together in 21. They rushed into the theater in chapter 19. They dragged Paul out of the temple in 21. They dragged Gaius and Aristarchus into the temple, into the uh, theater in Acts 19. They saw Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city. Who got dragged into the the temple were Macedonians, who were Paul's companions. Trophimus was his companion. The Macedonians were his uh, companion. At the end, the Jews cry out, away with him. At the end of chapter 19, they call out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Over and over again, the, the crowd is screaming. Chapter 19 started with, or not chapter 19, but the story in chapter 19 started with, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit, to go to Jerusalem. Where are we at? We're in Jerusalems. These two stories are bookends on the beginning and the end of the journey to Jerusalem. Where we go from here is out of Jerusalem up north and then eventually to Rome. So I see a parallel between those two. So this is what I mean by Christianity is odd. Do you notice that Paul goes to Ephesus, he goes to the Gentiles and he preaches and he gets in trouble. Why? Because he threatened their economy we make a good living off of these things. He threatened their religion. Artemis is going to be thought of as nothing. He, he, he affected, he, he threatened their city identity, their city-state identity. The temple might be considered as, as worthless because of this man's preaching. To the Jews he goes, and he gets the same treatment. This man, is he's going to be troubled. He's going to threaten our national identity. He's not only threatening our national identity, he's threatening our law. Not just our law, but this holy temple, this, this symbol of, of the pride of Israel. And so where is Christianity? Christianity sits right in the middle of both of those, right between these two opposite poles. He's not welcomed by the Gentiles. He's not welcomed by the Jews. There's a third thing. Christianity is just odd. It fits into an odd place between these two poles. Because at the time, you couldn't think of two more diametrically opposed religions. Paganism, multi-gods, you know, worshipping in in all kinds of ways, prostitutes and and priests and temples, and Judaism, monotheism, worshipped in a very prescribed way. Paganism, the temple is wide open, the, the sacrifices are made out front, you have to come in and see this. Judaism, it's all closed in and, and, and hidden. You have to go through these layers to get to it. Two very different things, and Christianity comes along and says, no, we're different. And I think the thing that makes Christianity so odd in both of these instances, it, it, there can only be one thing. We sang a whole bunch about it this morning, the Trinity, right? But what the Trinity means is God the Son came for us. God is not distant and aloof. He's not sitting on, on Mount Olympus, disinterested in what happens unless the, the temple performs well. And He's not hidden and barricaded away in a temple in Jerusalem. With Jesus, who is the heart, the center of Paul's preaching, God came to us. God is not impersonal. He's not, he's not distant and, and disinterested, He's personal. He's involved, he cares. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. That's how much God cares. Did Zeus so love the world that he sent his only begotten son? No, every once in a while he'd send a lightning bolt. That was pretty much it. The God of of the Jews, they rejected the son and they said, no, that would never happen that way. There's only one God and he doesn't show up. So, Christianity sits in this middle ground, this strange middle ground. Well, what about today? Um, for us, do we sit in a strange middle ground too? Well, yeah, we're not terribly welcomed in some places. There are just you know times when we're just not welcome. Are we threatened by the Jews? Are they going to come and, and kill us all and arrest us? No. I, tragically, this very week, a gunman went into a synagogue in San Diego and shot a bunch of people. The Jews are not the ascending, powerful people in this nation who are going to wipe out Christianity at the first chance they get. What about Artemis? Are we threatened today by Artemis? Christianity obliterated that religion, set people free from those idols. We we don't have Artemis worship today, so what do we face that we seem odd in? Well, we sit in kind of an odd place between two poles. There are nebulously religious people. They, um, They read their horoscopes. And they think of God as, yeah, the big guy upstairs. But he's not terribly interested and he's not terribly personal, he just is because he's there. And then there's the other side, the rationalists. There is no God, there can be no God. Um, And anybody who says there is a God is just a fool. But that's not religion, right? That's science, that's not religion, that's reason, that's not religion. Well, what I wanna tell you is both are a form of religion. They're, they're, a, they're a shape of religion. So the big guy upstairs, he's not really involved. I don't pray, I don't read the Bible, but he's watching over me. That's a form of religion. It's seeking an answer to how the universe works and why do things work out? Well, they just work out the way they should. That, that's, that's one side. The other side is science. Now, at this point, I'm gonna make scientists very angry, but it's not science that I'm attacking. I, I, what did I do last week? Do you remember what illustration I used last week? I got giddy over a black hole. I am not opposed to science. I love science. What I'm worried about is what's, what I would refer to as scientism. And that's the idea that science is going to answer everything. Because I have scientist after my name, I can speak authoritatively on all things. That's scientism. And it's the false belief that science is going to answer it all. That's the only place you go for authority. So to illustrate, the idea of scientism, I want to show you a cartoon. Could you throw that up real quick? Um, those of you who are old like me, you'll recognize this. This is Bloom County. It was a big cartoon in the 1980s when Calvin and Hobbes was big and that kind of stuff. And so uh, the, the the young boy who's standing there, he's, his name is Oliver Wendell Holmes, and he represents in Bloom County science and reason. He's a hacker. He's an astronomer, all of those things. And the penguin, I think, as far as I can tell, is Burke Breathes. Uh, avatar in the, in the thing. He's the rational, kind of passionate kind of guy. He likes to go sit in dandelion fields and, you know, uh, worry about things. So l- let's go through this real quick. Opus walks up and he says, you look tortured, Oliver. And Oliver said, the universe is expanding, speeding up, speeding up. There's no explaining this in a logic-driven cosmos. None. Superman is more logical. So we, have ra- so we rationalists had to cook up a bit of invisible fabulousness so we didn't go insane. And Opus thinks, God? Dark matter. Explains everything, thank God. <laughs> Opus says, I'm a simple penguin. What does, what's dark matter? A logic-based theory cleansed of the primordial mud of religious superstition. We can't see it, touch it, smell it, feel it or sense it, but for us secular rationalists, it explains the universe. It's there and here, everywhere. It has to be, and it is no doubt glorious." Opus says, how could it not be cleansed of all that woo-woo mud? And then Oliver Wendell Holmes looks back and goes, I got atheist chills. When I saw this, I thought, this is scientism is this is exactly what it is. We're going to come up with an explanation and worship it. It's it's the most glorious thing. Now, I'm not making fun of scientists because they're not all like this. But there are some who are. And right now I'm reading this book. um, It's called Atheist Overreach. It is not a criticism of atheism. Um, It's by a sociologist, as a matter of fact, a man named Christian Smith. He trained at Harvard, and he teaches sociology at Notre Dame. So he's no lightweight, you know, some hokey pastor in some little backwater town writing a book. He's a sociologist, and so what he does in this book is he wants to look at what can atheists accurately say and where do they overstep their lines. So he gives a, a few examples, and he's not just talking about the big shooters like, like Dawkins and Harris and, and, um, and uh, Hitchens and those guys. He's talking about just normal scientists writing papers, and so he quotes from this book by Steven Weinberg called The First Three Minutes. And Weinberg is a, a, a physicist, and he's talking about the great expansion or the great inflation. The moment after the Big Bang, when the universe began to exist and inflated, it went from a point of almost nothingness to a whole universe. It's pretty mind-blowing stuff when you study that. But listen to what, what um, Weinberg says in his book. He says, it's almost irresistible, although false, for humans to believe that we have some special relation to the universe that human life is not just a more or less factual outcome of a chain of accidents reaching back to the first three minutes, but that we were somehow built in from the beginning. It's very hard to realize that this is just a tiny part of an overwhelmingly hostile universe. It's even harder to realize that this present universe has evolved from an unspeakingly unfamiliar early condition and faces a future extinction of endless cold or intolerable heat. The more the universe seems comprehensible, the more it seems pointless. And the very next thing that that, uh, Smith says is, wait, what? How do you get from three minutes after the Big Bang to it's all pointless? He says you can't make those kind of jumps. You can't make those logical inferences. Scientism makes you think you have all the answers. Because I understand how the first three minutes of the universe existed, the, the great expansion, then I can predict that there is no point in the universe. Really? How do you get there from here? You're answering a question science isn't asking. Science isn't capable of asking. And so what we face in our culture is, on the one side, the general nebulous, kind of foggy religiosity, and God's a big guy with a white beard, and, you know. and on the other side, this hostile form of atheism. So to explain it, since he's a sociologist and he can't just let it drop, This is what Smith says. He says, however much modern people, including scientists, would like to believe that we operate purely rationally. We only understand things rationally. As much as people would like to believe that, we know that cultural status cognitively biases uh, biases people's tendency to offer and accept beliefs generally, even erroneous beliefs. Let me translate that from sociologist into human. What he's saying is we have a cultural bias where we're going to believe things we like to believe, and we're going to listen to people we like to listen to, and that's how we're going to assess something as true or false. So as much as, as scientism would like to say we are rational, we are only operating on the facts, Science or faith, religion is all faith and woo-woo mud, what Smith is saying is it doesn't operate like that. There's a cultural bias one way or the other. He says, put differently, science is a dominant institution when it comes to knowledge claims. Scientism, I would add, is not just a dominant culture. It assumes all authority. It it is the pope of modern life. I will pronounce to you what is true and what is false because I have scientists after my name. And one of the privileges of dominance is not having to learn and to think as hard as one should when it comes to making claims beyond one's core competence. I am a scientist. The science is settled. I have spoken. Don't ask me questions. Don't challenge me on this. The science is settled. And I don't have to ever go back and go, is the science settled? Is this this the best answer for this? I don't even have to ask myself, can I make this pronouncement? There is dark matter in the universe, therefore there is no God. What? How do you get there? So that's the weird place that we as Christians sit in between these two, is we've got scientism on one side, not science, scientism, and we've got a mushy religion on the other side that says, God doesn't really get involved that much. He's not really interested in what I'm doing. And yet Christianity stands between those two and says, Jesus came for us. Jesus came to be with us. He he didn't come, just as we sang this morning, he took on human nature to be with us. He didn't come and say, follow these rules, and and maybe God will pay attention. Stimulate me in the temple, and maybe I'll I'll give you some, some nice stuff. What he said is, I care, and I've come to rescue you. I've come to draw you to myself. And so the terrifying thing to the scientist, or the scientist, scientismist, I, the person who is into science and the, the, the mostly religion person is God is intimately personal. That's terrifying. I like a universe that is cold and distant and uninterested, but a God who cares? That can be startling because I then have a relationship with this God. With the universe, I can just go say nice things into it maybe it'll be nice back to me, but a God who, who comes for me? And so that's what Paul is getting in trouble for. He's not getting in trouble for saying, yeah, the law has changed. He's not getting in trouble for saying, yeah, forget the law. What he's saying is, God became man. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father. That's the picture. And that's what makes both sides in this equation mad. That's why I say this is kind of bookends on this trip to Jerusalem. As it shows both the Gentiles and the Jews are angry about this. In our day and age, it's a similar thing. We got people on both sides of us who are angry about this idea that God is personal. In Islam, Allah is transcendent. He is very different, he's very other from us. He would not be interested in what you're doing. You do these things so that you might curry his favor, but a personal God, a God who says, I love you and I care, that's that's chilling, that's scary. We can't have that. So Christianity, even today, when we hold the biblical view of who God is, of what God has done, of who Jesus Christ is and what he's accomplished, is odd. It stands out in a bizarre way. God cares. When you pray, and this is where scientists, people into scientism don't understand prayer. Well, you know, um, in... uh, New Zealand, there was that shooting, and somebody on Twitter quipped, did you even consider prayers and thoughts? They expect, because we pray, that that means we're going to get our way. Because God's not personal. He's not relational. He's not wise. He's He's a force. And if you activate this force, then you'll get your prayer. So you guys are praying, and you're not getting your prayers. Therefore, this God thing must not be working. But we say, no, we are appealing to a wisdom far beyond ourselves. We are calling out to a God who cares intimately for every individual person who is involved in the lives of all people. And so when we call out to him and we say, Lord, please stop these shootings, we put that in his hands and go, you do what you know is right. Our desire is that this stops. Lord, would you please stop people busting into houses of worship like Sri Lanka temple, or uh, Sri Lanka churches and uh, synagogues in San Diego? Would you please stop having them kill each other? And then we trust him, because he's personal. He's not a force. So again, I want to say, Christianity is odd. It just stands out as different in the entire world, and that's going to get Paul in trouble. That's what Paul is going to continue to go and argue on his trip to Rome. As he's heading towards Rome, that's his, his take. And so, yes, we're at a, a pivotal point in the book. We're in the closing chapter. We're seeing Paul's ministry come to an end. He's not going to be preaching in synagogues and, and bringing thousands to Christ anymore. But he's going to continue to be faithful with what he's, with what he's doing, not because the message has failed, but because the one who's commissioned him is faithful. So that's, that's the other part of this Christianity is weird, is right now what we're seeing in America is Christianity on the decline and the nuns, I don't mean religious women in black gowns, but people who say I don't have any religion, is on the rise. Does that mean we've lost? Does that mean we did something wrong? It just means the we, this world world is like this, and Christianity is weird, and so we we are called to be faithful, just like Paul on this journey, and walk through this, and go. I'm going to continue to preach the gospel. Herod, I want you to believe this. You know this to be true. And then Herod go, well, you almost had me convinced. That's our calling. That's that's what we're called to do. So if you're weird, congratulations, you are a disciple of Christ. You're meant to be weird. We, we, were, we should stand out in this world as odd. There's something with these people. They have a hope that just won't go away. They're, they're oppressed and opposed, and yet they're hopeful. How on earth do you people do that? It's because we have a personal God, not an impersonal force. And he cares. Let's pray. Our personal God, our God who cares, who is intimate... Who is involved with us. Lord, as we prayed in that, that uh, Puritan prayer about the Trinity, uh, Lord Jesus, you came and you didn't hover above the ground, you didn't shout from the clouds, you took on humanity. And you didn't come and appear as a, as a 30-year-old man, you were born in a stable. And you grew in statue before God and man. Lord, you have so intimately involved yourself in humanity. And we're so grateful. Lord, no wonder other religions can't comprehend either the doctrine of Jesus, full humanity and full divinity, or the doctrine of the Trinity. It is amazing. But Lord, for us, it is hopeful, it's beautiful, and it's personal. So, Lord, help us to be weird in this world. Help help us to maintain an odd Christianity that stands at odds with all these other things. Lord, to accept. Truth as it comes from whatever source and to confront truth or falsehood where where it is not in line with what you have done. Give us wisdom, we pray. But Lord, I pray most importantly and, and the biggest thing of all is would you fill our hearts with a love for Jesus Christ so that we may endure, so that we may walk, so that we may continue to preach the gospel despite the obstacles or opposition. And Lord, we ask all of these things in the name of Christ, our Savior, who came for us. In his name, amen.